This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. John Anderson is the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. He served almost 20 years in the Australian Parliament, including six years as Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the National Party of Australia from 1999 to 2005. He is a Reformed Evangelical Anglican, well-known during his time in Parliament and his long tenure in Australian public life for his Christian faith. He is now an esteemed elder statesman in Australia. His commentary is even now sought out. He has recently published on topics such as civic freedom, global food security, modern slavery, and the economy. He currently farms on his family's sixth-generation farm while being active through various directorships, through public speaking, and his involvement in the nonprofit sector. John Anderson, welcome to Thinking in Public. John, it's an honor to have this conversation with you today, and I'd like to begin by asking you to describe your country, its culture, its uh, its Christian heritage, because I think a lot of American evangelicals in particular aren't really certain about how Christianity uh, came to be in Australia and, uh, and, and the profile of Christianity in Australia today. Uh, where do I start? Uh, same size as continental USA in terms of geographic landmass, but only 24 million people. Um, settled after independence here in America as a penal colony, but also for Britain to, you know, fly its flag on the great south land that they knew was down there, that Captain Cook had explored uh, after the Dutch had found the west coast. Um, Very much uh, in its early days a penal colony. So the old saying is it was settled by the British and uh, it was given uh, an economy by the Scots uh, and the Irish did the work, many of them being convicts, frankly. Um, And it inherited its democracy. It didn't fight for it the way so you know, so many other cultures did. Uh, that was a great blessing in one way. In another way, maybe we've never quite appreciated it enough. It was really the work of the uh, evangelicals involved in the anti-slave trade that saw to it that there was an early Christian witness in Australia. They made sure there was an evangelical chaplain, a chaplain first, but then it was evangelical with Bibles sent out with the first fleet. Interestingly, the orders uh, involved uh, included the injunction that there would be no slaves kept in the new colony. It grew over time. It was you know, very much um, a series of colonies uh, until an act of the British Parliament in 1900 made it a, a nation, a federated nation like America. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, it remained very much though an English outpost, I suppose you'd say, uh, until uh, the time of um, the Second World War. And interestingly... Um, it was, this year is the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Coral Sea, the turning point in the Pacific War. It was during that time that Australia started to see America as being the dominant global player, the one that was going to be very important for security in the Pacific and in Asia. At that stage, just to win the war and to keep Australia free from invasion. MacArthur, of course, based himself there during the war. Um, so the church scene, somewhere between America and uh, and Europe, I suppose you'd say, probably tending slightly towards Europe. But I would say the best of our Christian leadership's absolutely outstanding, even if the tale's a bit longer than I'd like it to be. My understanding of Australia is that uh, as a nation, it not only did not, as you so well said, uh, have to fight for democracy, it really never experienced anything akin to the first and second great awakenings in the United States. And... Uh, 
it, it seems that that's a critical point of distinction between the two cultures religiously. I think that's right. Uh, there are people in Australia who write stories about revivals, but when you get into them, it'll be a coal mining town somewhere that had an infusion of people from Wales or whatever. The, the, one of the, the, but there are high points for all of that. Um, no, no great awakening that I could really put my finger on. Nonetheless, a solid, particularly in Sydney, strong witness from those very early days of an outstanding Anglican theological college. Um, a free country too in the sense that, you know, it's always good for ideas and beliefs to operate in a free environment where people can compete and, uh, you know, sort of spiritual version of capitalism, I suppose. Often the best ideas do rise to the surface. Yes. So, uh, you know, I'd say you've always had a strong leadership, even if it hasn't been large, uh, for those who have wanted to go and hear good preaching, know what they're talking about, be, be well and truly discipled, so to speak. It's been there, just not as widespread as it is, for example, in America. You mentioned particularly in Sydney. It, uh, it also, it seems to me, makes a great deal of difference where you are in Australia. Now, by the way, it does in the United States as well. Uh, for instance, our Pacific Northwest was never really evangelized or congregationalized. And for most of American history, it's been the most secular part. And, and by no coincidence is also uh, morally and culturally the most progressive or liberal uh, part of the, uh, of the country. And uh, I, I do know that Sydney's distinctive. How did that come to happen? Oh, I think it goes back to settlement. It, 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 this is this is why history is so important, you know. I mean, what did Churchill say? Uh, any culture that doesn't hand on to its children an understanding of its religious beliefs mm -hmm. and its heroes is saying that that history's null and void and no use. Thus, leaving young people open to the dictates of Karl Marx, that are people who do not know the history are easily led. History is important, and the background to it really is to be found in the great evangelical awakening. Here's an irony. So no great awakening in Australia per se, but we were the beneficiaries of it just as we were of inheriting yes. democracy and what have you. So you had that whole age of the Clapham sect um, through into the Shaftesbury era, era what mm -hmm. have you, influencing Australia very strongly. So, uh, you know, there was a very sound theological college set up which has kept the uh, Anglican church in Sydney uh, very clearly focused on biblical uh, uh, teachings. Um, uh, but you also had that play out to the country's enormous benefit as things like humane labour laws were established in Britain, they flowed through to Australia, understandings of democracy. When we were federated, our House of uh, Representatives, which I was in for 19 years, um, was, uh, was very closely modelled on the British House of Commons, but we looked to America for the Senate. Our Senate is precisely modelled on yours. We had the benefit uh, – we were the beneficiaries of a lot of blood, sweat and tears mm -hmm. spilt uh, in, in Britain and to some extent in this country. And we've been the great beneficiaries of it ever since, even though as a proud Australian, I'd say we've pulled our weight in many ways in international affairs at the same time. Now, Australia as a nation uh, really came onto the world scene in a big way after the Second World War, uh, just in terms of uh, – first of all, your, your federation took place back in 1900. Uh, but uh, – where does Australia fit now in terms of the world picture? What, what, what's Australia's role in the world? It's a good question. Um, I can't help as a, somebody with an interest in history just making the point about the Second World War. I think it was Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson um, in Paris after the war talked about – I speak on behalf of however many Americans there were at the time. 
But our Prime Minister, Billy Hughes at the time, said, I speak on behalf of 60,000 dead, which was double the American casualty rate in that horrendous war because we'd been deeply enmeshed in that. Funnily enough, in the Second World War, we were only engaged in two really turning point uh, inflection moments in the war. Where do we fit now? Look, a mid-ranged First World, I suppose you'd say, uh, country um, uh, of the West but not in it, very high immigration population, um, oh, numbers, um, so uh, a changing uh, sort of uh, mix uh, of people. Um, I think watching uh, with no little concern how global events are unfolding, very conscious, of the, I mean, there's no other way to put it, the relative and absolute decline of Europe because in many ways we're still a European sort of uh, democracy uh, and what have you. And still, I think, very closely allied to this country and seeing our future, particularly in Asia, uh, as being closely tied to how unfolding events uh, are handled out of Washington and by the Americans. Because your role in Asia since the Second World War, well, firstly, securing the peace, but then in um, taking it forward, has been really remarkable. Uh, And it's very easy for progressives and people who don't teach history or teach it very badly in our universities to gloss over great realities. The nobility of this nation in the Marshall Plan under Truman at a time when you couldn't afford it financially um, was extraordinary and Europe owes its existence today, I think, to what happened then. The big-heartedness and generosity of spirit and wisdom of MacArthur, who doesn't always enjoy a good press in Australia for his handling of some of the war issues, uh, sort of progression, but in relation to what he did in Japan, it's been unbelievably important to the peace and security we've enjoyed since. So uh, there we are, of the West, not in it, uh, in a strategic part of the world that's important, I think, not just to us, but to all of us who want peace in the world. And I hope good contributors. But look, let me be frank. I have to say this. uh, You know, there's a bit of a rule in Australia. You don't talk about your own country when you're out of it. But like every other Western country, uh, we're very uncertain of who we are, what we believe in, what it's going to look like for the next generations. And if I can put it this way, the cultural malaise that I would say we've experienced since the mid-60s with the the sort of the build-up of radical individualism, it's all about me, I must have everything, it's been reflective of a loss of uh, commitment to the two great commandments, even if that was observed more in the breach than in reality, has, I think, left us um, in a precarious financial position. Uh, and, you know, debt, as one of your forefathers saw, uh, pointed out, is enslavement. And that's the West's problem. We are so deeply yes. in hock right across the board that it threatens everything. In the West... There seems to be something of a pendulum uh, move, a temptation towards either pessimism or optimism. And so the declinists about the West uh, have been famous ever since the 19th century. And yet on the other hand, at uh, the turning point of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet Union, you had thinkers like Francis Fukuyama who uh, wrote about the end of history and suggested against the declinists that actually – uh, the rise of the West, the uh, influence of the West globally was inevitable. Neither one of those predictions has turned out to be very true. But what does the world look like from Australia, just in terms of the influence of the West? Um, it depends an awful lot on whether you listen to what people say or what they do. Mm. <laughs> in one sense, I say that because it always amazes me that um, uh, the minute they get the chance, uh, young European, young Australians, where do they travel to? Um, 
Europe, particularly Britain, mm. the minute they can get there, hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, but we talk the talk uh, increasingly as though we're, in, we're part of Asia. Um, I'm afraid I think the answer, the real answer to your question is, is confusion. Nobody seems to know what they think anymore. But the clearest thinkers will say, look, we should believe in our own culture. We really ought to. Um, we should not succumb to the self-loathing that so much of the left participates in and with which it's managed to, if you like, so swamp much of the uh, mindset and that, that applies and is, is carried forth in our universities. We ought to be prepared to go back and say, you know, wh- why is it, for example, that so many other people from other cultures want to come to us? If we're so terrible, what is it that attracts them to our participatory liberal democracies? I use that in the classic sense of liberal, uh, not the American or indeed Australian sure. sense. Um, uh, and, you know, it points to something greater, something more noble. Um, what an irony it is that the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, we're told, you know, was asked, charged with responsibility to work out how the West, mainly really led by a little set of islands, foggy islands off the west coast of Europe, eclipsed China, which was by yes. far the greater, uh, you know, uh, sort of bulk, if you like, of um, global uh, size, power and uh, economic strength 500 years ago. How did Britain – how did it happen? Yes. And, you know, they came back and said, well, first we thought perhaps it was bigger guns and we thought perhaps it was capitalism then we thought it was democracy but no, we understand now it was Christianity. The emphasis on the, the uh, recognizing the worth and the dignity of every individual, uh, the rule of law arises out of that as one American put it. Um, we're so good we had to give ourselves the vote. We're so bad we had to give ourselves a vote. Uh, we need to recapture that. We need to, I yes. think, reinvigorate it. I believe that very profoundly because I don't think we should let go of the freedoms that we uh, we've, we so have ta- enjoyed and taken yes. for granted. They have their roots in something. We need to retill the soil before it's too late. There is no uh, decoupling of geopolitical issues and worldview issues, but uh, but my first concern is the worldview uh, dimension of this. The West is not merely a civilization. It's a set of ideas as is the case with every civilization. And in the West, uniquely in the West, you had a set of ideas that included human dignity, human yep. liberty, um, and uh, an understanding of uh, of what it meant to be a human being in society that simply hasn't emerged in any other culture. And so yep. even, even from other cultures where intellectuals have spoken in these terms, they've spoken of these terms mostly to the West um, – yeah. The, the reality is that there really isn't much of an alternative uh, for the people who say they believe in human dignity and human rights. There is no other civilization that has actually offered any grounding of those moral goods except what has been found in the West and that West entirely attributable to its Christian inheritance. Well, you know, uh, you're reinforcing my own prejudices. I said to a young man the other day who'd been educated in a school where he'd been exposed to clear Christian thinking. He's 10 years out. He's been through medical school, through the university system in Australia. And he said, oh, you're talking absolute nonsense. I mean, every religion promotes the idea, the worth and dignity of every individual. I said, well, well, show me. So he goes to his iPad and Googles, you know, a religion. I won't mention which one. Right. Care for individual human. I mean, goodness me. I said to him, mate, You've trained for years as a doctor. Uh, I'm not going to, uh, you know, play doctor for myself on the internet. Talk to people who really know what they're talking about because you can't find it anywhere else and it's unique and it's wonderful. 
And I have to say to me, it's staggering that people want to destroy it and walk away from it. And perhaps it finds its ultimate expression to me as being someone who's been in public life for a long time, that we don't even care enough about our own kids and our own grandchildren to say, hey, we better recapture a bit of this. We better end this theft of our children and grandchildren's cultural and economic future. It's very selfish of us. See, this is what we've done. We've gone back to default uh, for human beings, it seems to me, in, in the West. We're back to uh, saying it's all about me in this age of identity politics and of victimhood. Well, it doesn't work. We're going to throw everything away if we're not careful. You know, um, I think it was the English historian uh, Toynbee who wrote towards the end of his working life in the 1970s that of the 20-plus great civilizations he'd he'd uh, studied, uh, all of them had in the end failed as a result of internal decay, not external takeover. Are we really going to eat ourselves out from within? Well, that remains to be seen, I think. Uh, but I, I also want to come back to a point you made. So there are those who, who, who try to argue that, uh, that these worldview commitments distinctive to Christianity don't matter or that they're universal – but the interesting thing is, is that the, the isolated thinkers, for instance, uh, let me just put it this way, in Islam, the Islamic figures who say the things that Western liberals want them to say cannot say those things except in the West. In other words, they cannot say them from Tehran or even really from Cairo. They can't say them from Damascus or from Saudi Arabia. They have to say them in the West to the West. Again, you're talking to someone who's trained as a medical doctor. Good grief. Actual human beings are your concern, not theoretical human beings. You need to find out what's actually happening on the yeah. ground. There's a mm -hmm. reason why yeah. things are as they are. Well, you know, maybe we're ending – If <laughs> perhaps it never existed, but the age of reason. We don't think clearly. Confusion reigns. Sometimes I think of Romans 1. You know, have we sort of put ourselves in a position where <laughs> that's what's happening? Uh, and so perhaps the greatest need of all is a sense – of the need to return to clear evidence-based thinking and problem-solving in the West. But people don't want to because we don't want to be accountable. See, the minute you go back there, you have to start to acknowledge the great validity, I believe, of the Christian truths and the great effectiveness, indeed the wonderfulness of the societies that a Christian worldview has given birth to and sustained yes. in the past. I don't think you can get away from that. And the interesting thing is that you know, one of the things that divides, uh, it seems to me, um, the, the, the secularists, uh, atheists uh, in many quarters, are that some are willing to acknowledge that. Uh, I, I, I had a lunch with a young man the other day. He said, look, I, I don't want to believe in Christ, but I want to believe in Christianity. Uh, and what was interesting was that his father was standing there saying, well, you can't be a cut flower society. Um, you know, you cut yourself off from your roots. The plant will wither. It sounds so very Victorian, though, doesn't it, in the British context? Uh, well, they didn't get everything wrong there, you know. No. You as an American and I as an Australian, we can concede that to the Brits, can't we? Uh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I, I'll, I'll admit as I have to you before, I'm an Anglophile. But, uh, but we also learn a great deal by looking at history. And one of the lessons we see in the Victorian age is that the, the, uh, the aristocracy uh, largely abandoned faith in Christ but wanted to maintain Christianity. But if you cannot have. Christianity without Christ. Well, I'm, I'm of Scottish extraction and uh, in some ways you could argue the Scots began the Enlightenment, began in the Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. They tried to find a way to live without the embarrassing problem, uh, you know, uh, of, of uh, being told by Christ that we have a problem yes. and that we're loved and there's a solution, but we don't want to hear we've got a problem. We have got a problem, every one of us. And then collectively it turns into 
a pretty sad situation. I, I'm a great believer in Western civilization, a very passionate believer in it. I don't want to let it go. And I don't think we serve anyone by somehow or other trying to accommodate other views that don't give rise to the same sort of civilities yes. and liberties that we have. But I have to ask myself, will it last much longer if we don't wake up? There's always hope mm-hmm. if people will be realistic, if they'll turn around and say, we've got it wrong, think the prodigal son. And uh, now I don't I want to be very careful here as an Australian talking mm-hmm. about another country, but as I look at the Trump uh, phenomenon, I sort of think to myself, is this the American people dreaming of a more secure, um, uh, more um, predictable and sane environment of the 50s and 60s? Um, are we, if you like, uh, marching back towards... Um, we hope a benign father saying, we've got it wrong, we want to come back. We, we think things were better the way they were once, like the prodigal son. The trouble is that in human terms, there's no loving father who can run out, having seen us from far off, and say, yeah, come back in and it'll all be all right. We've changed the world. In many ways, it's become a very much more dangerous place. So yes, there's a heavenly father there for us personally, but our societies, I don't see any easy answers now. We've racked up too much debt. We've fractured too much. We've lost capacity to talk to one another. You can't get good public policy out of a bad debate, Al. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. You've got even less chance if you've got a truncated or silenced debate. And a lot of the left have as their objective the silencing of debate. Now, just to make certain that I'm not sounding too harsh here, a lot of the right now is playing the same game the left is. They're more interested in destroying one another than they are in actually solving the very real issues that now confront all of us in the West, not least of them being that terrible problem of debt. Even at this point in the conversation, it's really interesting to ponder the differences and the similarities in terms of the countries and the cultures of the West. Even in speaking of the shared universe of what Winston Churchill called the English-speaking peoples, we certainly notice both contrast and commonalities, just to compare the United States and the context in Australia. But this conversation with John Anderson reminds me of the fact that we sometimes trade places in terms of cultural developments. Sometimes things show up in the United States and later show up elsewhere, especially in the English-speaking world. But at the same time, right now, in terms of watching what is happening to the world in advancing secularization, it's also clear that some of the things that show up first in Australia will eventually also show up here. In any event, thinking Christians should be found thinking and thinking faithfully. John, in terms of intellectual history, you had Christendom give way in the Enlightenment to a shift in authority from revelation to reason. And uh, so you mentioned the Scottish Enlightenment, and of course, and, and that was the more conservative Enlightenment. And then you take the Continental Enlightenment, and it's far more radical. You had the rejection of revelation, and uh, you had this supreme confidence in human reason and rationality. And, and you can still see that in some vestiges. I was just in Germany. You can still see that in many ways. And, and for instance, uh, German intellectual life, not an accident. Um, but in the intervening decades, there has been even a rejection of reason. You were talking mm. about the need for reason. But we're, we're talking about an intellectual class 
that has undermined even the ability to use or to have confidence in reasonable arguments. And so you have the left now in absolute panic in the United States that, uh, that, that, that the vast majority of Americans appear, according to their view, to be unmoved by facts. But they're the very people who destroyed the very notion of truth and the very notion of fact. Uh, it's going to be very hard to get back to a reasonable public conversation or the kind of debate you're talking about. Unless there really is a return to reason, but reason has its own antecedents, and and that's belief in truth. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, it wasn't long before the Presbyterian Church in Scotland realised what they'd done. By the way, you know, uh, this is the trouble. You let a rat out of a cage. It isn't long before you realise it's very hard to get it back in. Uh, and of course, then you know, as you say, you had the rise of optimistic humanism as an alternative uh, came out of that. Should have been blown out of the war by the First World War. You would think. You would have think that destroyed it. Really, all those centuries of us improving ourselves, you know, light on the hill stuff, the trenches, bloodiest war of all times. So I think where we got to after that was that um, people thought, oh, especially by the fifties and sixties. You know, philosophically, we're out of bigger, neg- big mega narratives. Um, they're all too hard, so we'll just live for ourselves. Actually, in that, we've become very superstitious. I believe that C.S. Lewis was right, or uh, Cheston made the same point, I think, didn't he? That, uh, you know, you stop believing in God, you stop believing in anything. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what you hear from the left now is unbelievable. Claptrap. I mean, it really is. And now. They're profoundly – this is one of the things we need to understand that's very threatening is that much of the left is profoundly anti-human. So the Labor Party movement in Great Britain today and to some extent I think in Australia, the working classes are very disillusioned with them because they actually sense that they're loathed. You know, they're the people who are polluting the planet and destroying us with climate change and having too many children and driving motor cars and consuming electricity. Um, They're the problem. Right. They're not the heroes. So you've got this profoundly anti-human streak in all of this. And I don't know how you restore reason of a sort that can work for people uh, when you've got a lot of people in academia who are actually quite deeply committed to the, to the idea that people are the cancer. Well, they even in, in the intellectual class have a name for this, the Anthropocene, the, the, uh, the, the age of man, uh, humanity, which is the, uh, the fall of, of, the, of creation. It's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to have a sane, reasonable conversation about what's now classified as climate change uh, because so many of the people involved are are separated by a worldview distinction long before you get to a thermometer uh, that has to do with uh, whether or not human beings are God's gift to creation or an absolute curse upon creation. Club of Rome, way back in the early 1960s, with too many people, people are the cancer destroying. So we almost moved to the point where we're saying human beings are the enemy of Gaia, you know, yes. the environment. Um, the universe. I mean, this is uh, this is weird stuff to me. And the problem with it is, I don't see how you can rescue a form of reason out of that that works for people, because in a sense, a lot of it is profoundly anti-people. And the people are starting to sense this. This is why you're seeing this terrible fracturing. And it has to be said. I would have thought you're seeing across the West. I think, including in this country, and you'll know what I mean by it. Quite a profound rejection of those that progressivism. People are using their votes to say we're sick of being treated as idiots and as second-class people, indeed as uh, objects of derision because we're the enemies of the planet. In other words, I don't think until you have a high view of man at the same time as you have a way of accounting for the conundrum of evil, until you've got a comprehensive worldview that starts with a high view of man, that you actually can find your way out of this. But that's the great insight of Christianity, but in particular the great reason why 
it uh, it was in those lands that were most affected by the Reformation that this distinctive anthropology came through. And that's one of the reasons why someone like Max Weber would, would trace capitalism to uh, to the Protestant Reformation, one of the reasons why uh, political scientists would trace democracy uh, in, in its modern form to, to the Reformation. And it was because the biblical worldview that was so defined by the Reformation and preached was a worldview that held up human beings – as the sole creature made in God's image, and 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 thus, with this incredible responsibility to uh, to be co-regents w- w- with the Creator in terms of uh, of the work, but still defined human beings as sinner, and 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 it's those two things that have to be said together, and and so that again just implies that without a Christian worldview, you either end up with a sadly depreciated understanding of humanity, or a grotesquely exalted view of humanity. Well, I think that's right. The glory and the scum. You've got to be able to hold the two in tension. Uh, so, you know, the biblical analysis is, and it's the only one that makes sense to me. And I had 19 years in public life. I had 10 years as a cabinet minister in Australia, six years as DPM. You meet a lot of people and you have to think through a lot of situations. You confront a lot of love and a lot of hatred and you see that glory and the scum. How do you make sense of it? Well, to me, the only account that makes sense created by an all-present, all-knowing God, uh, all-powerful, endless, there before the beginning of time, beyond. Any, any lesser God's not worth knowing, surely, um, for good. And to be in relationship, which is why we crave relationship. We're hotwired for it, surely. That's one of the things I could see Absolutely. all the time. Yeah. When relationships work in people's lives, they're on some sort of equilibrium. When they break down, to the extent that they've broken down and it can be absolutely dreadful, of course, at its worst extremities, their lives are a mess, uh, weakened by our selfishness, destroyed by our selfishness, but unbelievably we're offered a way back. For about two decades, you served in public service and in public office in uh, one of the most important Western nations, in one of the most interesting times of the political history of the West. Looking back, how would you define the Christian's responsibility in the public square? Oh, well, I'm an absolute believer in separation of church and state because I think that's a biblical idea. But the idea that you would uh, deny anyone a place in the public square uh, is abhorrent to me. And I think Christians not only have every right to participate in the public square and to put their views and so forth, they have a great responsibility to do so. Um so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I would say firstly that it was an enormous privilege and a great honour, but it was something that was also a responsibility to try and do. Um, we uh, we were, I think, a moderately successful government. Amazingly, we had uh, what we thought was a fairly serious debt-to-GDP ratio in 1996 of around 20%. We set out uh, – I was one of five people asked by the Prime Minister at the time – to form what we call the Razor Gang and wind that debt back. We, we got it back to zero and at the time of the, the financial meltdown that originated here, of course, uh, with the housing loans, Australia had money in the bank and a sovereign wealth fund and no debt at a Commonwealth government level. doesn't mean to say there wasn't corporate and private sector debt. Um, uh, so I think uh, – uh, why do I mention that? I actually think one of the things that we need to realise is that prudence and virtue in public life are things that Christians – can and should be prepared to bring to the table, I believe if, if they've been humble enough to allow themselves to be properly taught, they're uniquely equipped to highlight those things in the public square. I hedge my bets because I've seen a lot of Christians go out there, bumble it and make a big mess of it. 
But if you're well-informed sitting under good teaching, you understand what you're about, things like prudence, things like virtue, things like being able to just think through the morality mm-hmm. of sound economic management. Because the left will often say, you've got to be compassionate. Money is the answer to every social ill. In reality, if you want a good, and we all believe in good safety nets, governments should look after the poor just as they should protect them, the weak, the vulnerable, and what have you. But keep in mind at the same time, uh, the morality that centres uh, on ensuring that you're not leaving your kids and your grandkids with a mess. I think the West has been engaging in monstrous intergenerational theft. In Australia every year we celebrate our vets on Anzac Day and it's wonderful to see young people turning out in vast numbers to celebrate what amounts to, they wouldn't use the word, but the virtue of those people who risked everything for us. I'm not sure our children and grandchildren are going to do the same for us. Let's quantify that just a bit uh, because when we're talking about this intergenerational theft, which is actually what it is in terms of debt, we're talking about a problem now that can't be reduced to left and right. They're, no, not, an equal, it's beyond it. they're not in equal terms here. Right. But, uh, but many in the so-called right or on the conservative side are almost equally complicit uh, in, uh, in furthering this process of enslaving future generations to our debt. We're spending money we don't have. We're, we're borrowing wealth from the future. And uh, why is it, you think, that, uh, that even most Christians don't think seriously about a matter of such seriousness? Uh, golly, I think the answer is manifold. I, I can't say this applies in America, but I think it does in Australia. I don't think many of our young people are very well taught. I really don't. I don't think we value teaching enough and I think we train our teachers well enough. Um, that's, that's the first point. But I guess – you know, the obvious rejoinder to that would be to say, well, actually, it probably starts in the homes, but it's a self-perpetuating thing. People have a little understanding of what happens if you're not prudent. Think of the wisdom literature, you know, in, your, in terms of the immediate impact on yourself and, and, and your own family, but let alone what it's going to mean for future generations. And that's one thing that they had in the past, this commitment to family meant you thought about what you were passing on. Brilliant line from um, a clear Christian thinker in Australia with a great turn of things. He said, you know, our forebears in this nation, he's talking about Australia, um, took enormous risks to sail across very dangerous seas and to go to a very hot and arid climate where there were risks everywhere from spiders, snakes, floods, fires, you name it, in the hope that they could build a great society for their children and grandchildren. And he said, our fathers fought in, through depressions and wars, secure in the, in the belief that, that, of the hope that they had that they could secure a safe world for themselves and for their kids. He said, our kids have been taught to hope for a good time tonight. And maybe that sort of uh, shows some light on it. But, you know, really prudence demands that if we think this through properly, if we want to live in a good society, Al, we either pay for it as we go or we demand that our children pay for it on bank card. Now, that is a really serious moral issue that every Western thinker, in my view, needs to face up to and face up to now. And as you say, one of the marks of so many countries at the moment, Britain's a bit of an ex- a little bit of an exception to this, I'm quite impressed by the way some of their government at the moment is thinking about this issue. But by and large, the right hasn't been much better than the left in recent times. Right. They've merged somehow, as though we can pretend this problem, we kick the can down the road forever. This gravely worried the early theorists of democracy, 
who yep. uh, who felt that the uh, perhaps the weakest, or and by democracy we mean a constitutional republic, mm. they, yep. they they feared nonetheless that if you give people the power to vote themselves benefits, they yep. will do so. Yep. And uh, I think that's a part of the political paralysis right now is that the left and the right have been complicit in allowing people to believe they could give themselves benefits without it ever costing anyone. Well, I think from the 60s on when we gave up on mega narratives, you know, it's all too hard. None of the isms of work, communism, fascism, humanitarian, uh, humanism, optimistic and pessimistic. And we're not going back to Christianity. So we're just going to live for me now. And if you're living for me now in an age of cheap credit, you'll rack up a lot of personal debt. But when it gets to a certain point where you can't do it anymore, you'll say to your congressman, I'll vote for you if you give me X, Y and Z benefits. And the congressman, I'm not trying to single out America here. I'm just saying that that's the language you would use, gives way. And while ever you can borrow cheaply and the piper doesn't call the debt in, that's a very easy way as kings have known from times of old to satiate a population. But therein lies, we're all complicit. We're all involved in this. We've not thought prudently. Sometimes history forces us to think more prudently than otherwise we would. I think of September 11, 2001. You were acting prime minister in Australia uh, when that took place. I want to go back to that day, September 11, 2001. Mm. And I want to talk about the issue of evil, moral Mm. evil. That was, you would think, a clarifying moment. What was it like to be the acting prime minister of Australia at that moment? Well, very concerning. We didn't know where our prime minister – well, we knew he was in Washington. But, of course, there had been a plane gone into the Pentagon. We knew he wasn't far away from where that had happened. Uh, Airspace was closed. Communications were shut down. The defense people were able to connect us amazingly. The best telephone line I've ever had from one side of the world to the other. Extraordinary what those people have got. Uh, But – I uh, And funnily enough, I was dealing with a very major issue in Australia at the time. One of our two major international airlines had gone belly up, bankrupt, and I'd been working constantly trying to see whether we couldn't get the thing flying again and arrange for an orderly sail because we had people stranded. All around. Anyway, that was another mess. So I was pretty done by the time it happened. I remember having a lot of trouble waking out of the fog of fatigue because I hadn't slept for two nights to see this thing on television. But I actually did make the point the next morning uh, I actually said this is a powerful reminder to those who would have had us live in a fog of naivety in recent decades that evil has not gone away. It's never gone away. And I sometimes wonder whether those writers who say that night might be seen by future historians as the end of postmodernism weren't right. But have we learnt the lessons? I see a lot of academics still trying to relativise away the idea of evil. Absolutely. But if the intellectuals come to terms with evil – and this is something I talk about routinely – uh, evil is impossible as a secular category. Um, evil is a theological term, and that's one of the reasons why an increasingly secular left simply can't use the word evil yep. with a straight face. They're embarrassed yeah. by the use of it because yeah. it is theological. Mm. Yeah, but that's where one of the great hopes is, isn't it? You know, the reasonable middle out there, the people who have felt leaderless for a long time because they have been leaderless that are looking for people to say, look, please reinterpret this world for us. Give us some hope. Show us where it actually is. And this is where we as Christians, I think, need to take a good dose of humility because in many ways the churches have been complicit in letting people down. They haven't held to the truth. They've not argued it. They've given way. I mentioned the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. You know, It soon realized the error of its ways, but those leaders who gave way to enlightenment thinking, um, it's been a disaster. We are a cut flower society. We're not being nourished by the soil that we were growing in anymore. And there's a lot of people, I think, saying, "Who? Uh, so I can't think who it was now. One of the clever writers of um, 
uh, of the 20th century uh, observed of some silly ideas floating around. It's, it's, that idea is so ridiculous that only an intellectual would believe it. No ordinary man in the street would fall for it for a moment. We know evil is real. Anyone with half a brain, because they were hot-wired anyway to understand this, can see at yes. once the nobility and the scum, the glory and the scum. Uh, and anybody who has it pointed out and sits down in a moment of self-reflection knows that actually it's a problem for every one of us. We're at war in ourselves because we know both instincts as well. How do you explain it? Well, we go back to what we said earlier. I believe there is only one rational explanation. And if it wasn't so serious, it would be funny watching the contortions, frankly, that a lot of academics go through trying to get around the problem of evil. But, you know, that's not new. You think of Jean-Paul Sartre uh, uh, back in the period after the Second World War who said there are no moral absolutes. Uh, moral judgments are all ephemeral and, uh, and, and, and uh, by definition wrong. And then he signs the Declaration for Algerian Independence in the name of moral sense. Uh, you can't stop making moral judgments. You can't. Uh, We're moral beings. Right. And, and, and I think even the intensity of moral judgment stays pretty constant. As many others have noted, it just gets directed in different ways. But we're living in a different intellectual moment. And this is where I want to ask you another question particular to Australia. A sociologist looking at various Western cultures uh, identify Australia as at least a model of a certain form of hypermodernity. And of hypersecularity, uh, I just want to ask you, as an Australian, what does that actually look like? Um, because you are a, an evangelical Anglican, and we've talked about the fact that uh, we should be very thankful there there is, is a strong evangelical heritage and a, and a strong evangelical presence in Australia. But the culture at large is uh, is being actually admired by many in the United States as as what they would like to become. Look, I. I'm a proud enough Australian to say that I think in policy terms we've got a lot right. Uh, it's easier in a smaller country and we've been very blessed with you know abundant natural resources and what have you and an inherited democracy that's worked very well. We've also had since the Second World War, I would say, three outstanding governments. Um, won't surprise you that I think I was, you know, the one I was part of was one of them. Uh, but uh, that have set the country up surprisingly well. But I think my response would be to say, look... Yeah, sure, the checks are still being cashed, but one day the money will run out. People say the same thing about Scandinavia, their model societies. It all seems to go very well. Um, You know, you desert a workable worldview, you know, in our case, the Judeo-Christian one upon which our Western democracies were set up. Sooner or later, you're going to come unstuck. You're seeing that in Australia today. We're not at war with ourselves the way some Western countries are, but that uh, I would argue that at the rate we're going, that's only be, we're only a few years behind. Uh, and you know, you're seeing some of the cultural impulses today. For example, the gender war stuff being taken into our classrooms. You know, it's it, it's unbelievable stuff. And is is the country at war over that? Absolutely, yes, it is. The minute parents discover, they're angry about two things. One is how did this happen? The second is. Where were the media pointing out and telling us that this was happening? Where's transparency? Where's integrity? Can we rely on anybody to reliably inform us anymore? Where do you think uh, biblically-minded Christians are inattentive to some of the big moral challenges of our day? Uh, I think of the fact – in fact, you made reference to this with the Clapham sect and uh, the particular form of evangelical influence that came in with a very strong anti-slavery biblical teaching uh, there in Australia – You've been active on the issue of human trafficking and the continuation of slavery uh, in today's world. Uh, tell us a bit about that and, and, and 
the picture of what that looks like worldwide? Uh, it's a very good question uh, because, you see, of course, once slavery was legal and above surface and it was defended vigorously in parliaments and in congresses by many people. Um, and in Britain, of course, it was the law of the land and even the churches kept slaves, uh, you know, some of them. Today, it's underground. Nobody would defend it, but it's still extensive and it is dreadful. I mean, I can't think of anything more dehumanizing than one human being thinking that they have the right to own or to trade another person as a goods and chattel and treat it as him or her as they like. I mean, that is appalling, just appalling. And so much of it now is in sex trafficking. Oh, absolutely. Especially in the Pacific region. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Grotesque beyond all belief. You know, when it first appeared in Australia in the mid-70s, it emerged that there weren't adequate laws to do anything about it because everybody thought slavery was dead. They thought it had gone. They thought we'd overcome that evil. But, of course, we haven't. And the numbers today really suggest that it's still a very real problem. Um, the answer is that there's a lot of people very honourably pursuing this very hard. And to its great credit, the British Parliament's passed some legislation recently, chain of responsibility legislation, saying that businesses that provide goods and services in the British market or anywhere else in the world, which may have involved slave labour, and, you know, and those businesses knew or should have known, uh, they can be named and shamed. Um, uh, and that's, Same here. Yeah, you have that here. Well, it, I mean, in, in terms of uh, of the shareholder activism mm. and uh, yep. a, and uh, concern about many institutions, Georgetown University, yep. for instance, most famously, is involved in yeah. the slave yep. trade. Um, so, look, I'm actually going to hear, say here that I actually think you've got a lot of very good people uh, and a lot of good churches who are doing a very honourable thing here and trying their best to highlight it. I do think it's a bit interesting that as you see the cacophony of noise about various human rights, some of which I'm not sure I would regard as human rights around there, particularly from from the left, let's be honest, it'd be nice to see a little bit more noise about people. I'm not sure whether it's right, but you know, I heard a suggestion the other day that younger people now are more likely to devote money, uh, if they give money away, to environmental causes and to humanitarian causes. That in itself is an interesting question. Uh, I still think it's people that, you know, uh, the idea of, of slavery is just so abhorrent. So I think there are many people being honourable. Are we alert to the moral challenges of our age? Let's just say we need to have a broad palette because you can't just spend your life focusing on one or two moral issues. We all need to take forward with humility but with firmness the whole palette of issues to the best of our ability that confront us. I wholeheartedly agree with that, but I think we have to start somewhere. And this is where I see some hope on the sex trafficking, uh, human slavery front Mm. at present because there is a rightful revulsion to it that can only be explained on some basis. The human beings, all human beings, are made in the image of God. That was the argument in, in, in those days. Josiah Wedgwood. The pottery maker, he got it. He struck a plate with a kneeling um, uh, man uh, and underneath it, am I not a man and a brother? Well, that wasn't the way they were seen. And it was a political slogan of very great quality that had huge impact. And, you know, the other point I'd make is that I think the succession of the uh, uh, success of the, in Britain it was first the, the ending of the slave trade and then the ending of slavery itself with massive compensation paid out, by the way, to slave owners who'd had to, free their slaves. And then, of course, you, know, you would know the history of it much more here. It was enormously humanizing. 
It was a very powerful humanizing influence. And we were talking about the Enlightenment earlier. Very important to remember, it was not Enlightenment forces that led to the ending of slavery or the granting of things like women's votes and so forth, by the way, and labor laws. Most of the Enlightenment figures believed slavery was part of the natural order of things. They were racist, and they also believed women were inferior species. The humanizing effects of turning those things around actually came from the Christians. It came from Christians, and to our shame, it was often opposed by Christians. Uh, And this is where we have to hope and pray that a biblical logic to which the church is bound will, in faithfulness, bring the church to the rightful position. It's uh, it it the the problem in a conversation like this is that we want to be very clear uh, about uh, the indispensability of the Christian worldview, and at the same time, not be triumphalistic about Christians, because it turns out. The doctrine of sin applies to us in ways that uh, we need to remind ourselves very regularly. Well, I agree with that. Uh, and, um, you know, I often have to check myself and, I, you know, I have to pull myself up and I say, you know, I sound a bit smug on that. I need to recognize that uh, there but for the grace of God go I, you know, as Paul said, I myself may need to recognize I'm a sinner first. Amen. But that also leads me to want to ask you another question about Australia. And uh, I will thank you not – uh, for one of your exports to the United States by the name of Peter Singer, uh, a, a bioethicist at Princeton who was one of the most uh, reprehensible thinkers on the planet today who actually teaches that there is nothing such as human dignity that is inherent, uh, actually argues that there are pigs and cattle with more of a right to life than infant human beings. Uh, truly, truly wretched. Uh, came to us in the University of Monash uh, mm. in, uh, in Australia what is the state of academic life? I realize that that's just one example, mm-hmm. but uh, but I try to follow this from a distance. It appears to me that uh, that much of your university life is uh, is really very allied with the far left yeah. I- I- in Europe. I think that's right, and there's a furious debate going on in Australia now about free speech, and it focuses on the laws in Australia. It ought to be broadened out to. Come, you know, to sort of cover this issue of the need for a much broader, much more comprehensive, much more honest national debate about the issues that confront us. But that's not what's happening. Academia should be providing us with clear analysis of the economic and social issues that confront us. They're not. They should also be providing evidence-based policy solutions to those issues. That's what we pay them for. And they're paid for by the taxpayer to a greater degree than they are in the United States. Uh, you know, we don't have the uh, generous philanthropic uh, tradition that you have in this country of former alumni and the business sector and so forth. Nowhere near as big in Australia. And so you've got this stifling uniformity. In the name of diversity, it strikes me, they have more than any other age limited diversity in thinking. So we have all of the mechanisms there writ large, trigger warnings, safe places, platform denying, and the taxpayers paying for the narrowing of the minds of young people. This is a very big issue, in my view, which is starting to be understood. We've got brilliant international thinkers, uh, including in this country, who are starting to point to this terrible drift to the left of academia. As some of them say, that doesn't matter as long as they actually allow contraviews to be put and properly discussed. You'll never get good public policy without a proper public debate You've got no chance whatsoever if you truncate parts of it or all of the debate. It won't happen. And a big part of it, remember the old saying, it's attributed to Voltaire, it wasn't him, it was 
a female biographer of his long after he died, but I may disagree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. It implies a respect. Free speech depends on a respect for the other person. It's another part of our Christian heritage that the left wants to destroy. But if I recognize you have worth and dignity and standing to the same degree that I do, even if I disagree with you, I recognize you have a right to put your ideas on the table. There's another important subset of that, though, that's often overlooked. As part of that discussion, everyone must be entitled not just to put their view, but to have their questions answered, not silenced, not be vilified if they have reservations. And in a democracy, you won't get ownership of public policy if people feel not only have they been shut out of the discussion, they haven't had their questions answered, haven't even been allowed to put their questions. If I could ask you one final question, it would be this. Uh, what would you say to evangelical Christians, especially in the United States, as uh, – the most urgent message you would have based upon your own experience, long tenure in government and uh, an observation of the world around us? I'm tempted to say this. We need to get real about our economic debate because actually in the end, economics tells you about who we are as a people, how we've got it wrong and what we need to do to get it right. Economics in the end is not about a nice set of numbers. It's about good outcomes for people. We have this massive problem of indebtedness that's creating a form of enslavement, especially for young Americans, young Australians, young British, young French, young Germans, you name it, young Japanese. Um, it's the result of cultural drift, I believe, and its solving requires cultural addressing of issues and of attitudes and of debate on the way we talk to one another and our levels of honesty and integrity and ability to reason before we can fix them. So it's not a bad focus point. But in the end... All of these things we ought to pursue because of the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbour as yourself. And that's where our secure hope is. And so unlike the, you know, the, uh, the analogy I used a little while ago, we're looking for a safer, more secure world like the prodigal son wanting to come home. There's no earthly warm figure to run out and embrace us. But when we know that we... Our deepest needs, the real needs, are spiritual. Yes, that loving Father, he wants to run out and embrace us. And that's the most important thing of all. John, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you. It's been a great privilege. I'm thankful today for this conversation in public with John Anderson, and one of the reflections that comes to my mind is that in him, we are reminded of a certain type that is sadly disappearing from the political scene, that is, the distinguished Christian elder statesman. In thinking about Britain, the United States, Australia, and elsewhere, one of the hallmarks of the 20th century was this very species, the distinguished elder statesman or stateswoman who indeed was also known as a believing, faithful Christian. That's one of the things that distinguishes John Anderson and explains his continued influence and respect in the nation of Australia. It also explains why I was looking forward to this conversation today. And one of the things we certainly reflect upon in terms of this conversation 
Christian is the necessary, unavoidable intersection of the Christian worldview and the headlines of the day, whether the headlines emerge from Australia, Britain, the United States, or anywhere on the planet. And furthermore, one of the humbling realizations that came in terms of the conversation today is the fact that so many of the issues we discuss, even the evils that we confront, seem to be continual, repeated, almost even perennial, just to take the issue of human trafficking and human slavery. One of the most humbling aspects of the conversation today is that we are still confronting on a global scale what some of the bravest Christians of the past also very bravely confronted. At the same time, we are reminded of the difference that Christians really do make within a culture. Of course, in talking with John Anderson, you can point to a difference that Christians have made and continue to make in the political life of the nation. But the culture is bigger than politics. And I think one of the most fundamental issues revealed in the conversation today with John Anderson is the fact that the politics will never be healthier than the culture. Politics, as they say, is downstream from culture. The culture is the prior question. One of the fundamental aspects of a democracy, of a democratic form of government, is that eventually we actually do have the leaders that we deserve. Over time, those who are elected to office become something of a Rorschach test, revealing who we actually are as a people. That's true wherever a democratic form of government is found. I also appreciate the deeply moral sense of politics and economics that John Anderson brought to this conversation. His repeated emphasis upon the danger of debt, upon the reality that the debt that nations are now piling up, especially in the Western world, amounts to thievery stealing from future generations. The average person would recoil from the accusation that he or she is stealing from his own grandchildren and great-grandchildren, yet as nations, that is exactly what we are doing, and as citizens, we are all complicit in that theft. Another thought-provoking part of this conversation is the fact that we never, ever escape the morality of decision-making, whether in economics or in politics. That points most fundamentally to the moral nature of human existence, and that not by accident. That's the very purpose of the Creator who made us in His image. But it also points to the importance of politics. Yes, it is downstream from culture, but the persons who are elected to office end up making decisions that have not only immediate but often long range, impact, and influence. In any event, even if Christian statesmen are becoming altogether more rare, it makes it all the more important to have this kind of conversation as I did today with John Anderson. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.